This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For the first time in almost 60 years, the leader of Cuba will soon not have the last name of Castro. The 12-year run by Raul Castro after his brother Fidel is coming to an end. Raul had already mentioned that he was stepping aside because of his age. In part, he is 86. His hand-picked successor, Miguel Diaz-Canel Bermudez, will take over a country that has opened some economic doors in recent years, but not enough to significantly change the path of the island nation. We're going to spend the next half hour talking about this with a, an all-star panel of guests. Joining us in just a bit will be Lillian Guerra, who is a professor of Cuban and Caribbean history at the University of Florida. Also with us will be Gustavo Arnavat, who is a senior advisor at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And also joining us in just a little bit will be Richard Gioso, who is a director of Latin American Studies, uh, of the Latin American Studies program at St. Joseph's University in Philadelphia. Uh, Lillian is on the line with us right now. Lillian, welcome. Thanks for joining the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So your reaction, and and, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, uh, but uh, as of earlier today, the uh, Cuban government did make the announcement official that uh, the change will happen. So what has been your reaction in the lead up to this and now today? Well, first of all, I'm not at all surprised, nor is any Cuban on the island, because Fidel, or rather, Raul announced um, that this would be his successor in February of 2013. So nobody is surprised he was the only guy on the ticket. I was actually in Cuba at the time of the election, and most of the people I knew um, and those who I met, including waiters and taxi drivers, did not even vote. So it's not as if this is a major event. What it does represent is, in fact, an effort, I think, on the part of Raul to shift um, uh, blame for what are a number of policy changes that are coming down the pike and that have also been announced and that will be tremendously unpopular. So he will no longer, Raul will no longer be the face of those policies. Um, Raul, however, does retain most control, most of the control in Cuba. He will remain head of the military. He remains head of the Communist Party. And so um, the president, who will be the Escanel, is going to be responsible for um, putting into place some pretty radical economic changes um, that will impoverish Cubans. And so I think that this is a strategic move. It's a pragmatic move, and it is not a move that is in any way um, a shift towards liberalization. On the contrary, it is um, an effort to ensure continuity and stability. Richard Gioso also with us right now. Richard, welcome. And what's been your reaction, uh, especially over the last few months, uh, as this uh, scenario has kind of been ready to play out? Well, I would just echo what um, Lillian was just saying, that I think for many people on the island, I would say especially young people, young adults, this is does not represent much of a change, but rather more continuity. Um, the way I think about this particular event, although symbolically um, important, because yes, A. Castro is no longer going to be sitting atop the government, um, I also think that Cuba is constantly in transition. There are many big transitions that Cuba has gone through, the end of the Soviet period and uh, the Soviet bloc, 
uh, the stepping the, the the illness of Fidel and him stepping down, passing power over to Raul, then and then Fidel dying. There are many different transitions that have happened um, over the past 25 years, in particular, that you know the the, the system is, has proven itself to be adaptable and resilient. And so, though a uh, new leader will come to power as head of the government. Uh, I'm not convinced exactly that leadership will really change since it appears, at least for the time being, Raul will sit atop the Communist Party. Gustavo Arnavada as well with us. Uh, Gustavo, great to talk to you again, my friend. And, and obviously you have spent a lot of time looking at this closely. Uh, are you in agreement that uh, while there is a change of leadership in name, there may not be a change, uh, that much of a change in philosophy? No, I agree. And the, and the government over the last uh, several weeks and certainly the last uh, 24, 48 hours have stressed continuity as the theme for this uh, transition. So things will continue uh, in the same direction as laid out by Raul Castro in the last uh, 10 years or so. He, they mentioned about the fact that Raul will still have uh, quite a, a, a role in terms of the military and in terms of the Communist Party. So that being said, what really do you think are, are the challenges in your mind, Gustavo, that uh, Mr. Diaz-Canel will face moving forward, e economic, I would guess, being one of them. He will continue to have all of the uh, challenges that Raul Castro had uh, as, of, uh, as of early this morning uh, while he was still president. So the economy is very stagnant. Um, they're having, um, there's a population which I think has fairly high expectations uh, about uh, the standard of living, or, and, and I think they're expecting uh, potential changes, structural reforms that will allow them to have uh, better lives. Of course, he's got the challenge of dealing with a new president in the United States uh, who has a very different uh, philosophy than did uh, Barack Obama, at least in the last two years of, of Barack Obama's uh, you know, administration. So he has uh, to figure out a way, if he wants to, in fact, have a better relationship with the United States, uh, figure out a way to give something to Donald Trump uh, that will be of interest uh, in order for Trump to be able to um, to you know, open up again and want to do a deal with Cuba. Lillian, there were, as Gustavo mentioned, there was obviously a lot of optimism uh, in the last uh, year, year and a half of President Obama's term in office. How optimistic were you that that significant change could really get started at that point? Well, I've actually been um, rather um, unsurprised again by what has happened in the wake of Obama's visit. I mean, yeah. just the day after Obama visited, Raul denounced um, Obama, you know, publicly. I mean, he basically criticized him and ever since um, has continued that line to be very critical of Obama. Um, I think they were as surprised as anyone that Trump was elected. But um, Obama represented um, something that the, the Cuban state really had um, no way of dealing with. Um, he inspired Cubans as never before. He was the first president to visit um, Cuba since 1928 when uh, Calvin Coolidge visited. Um, and I think what's, what needs to be said here is that uh, that the government is, in many respects, um, facing two um, policy changes that we need to be very precise about that have been announced since 2011. Um, one is going to be ending um, the dual currency system, which has been in place. And and that basically
basically allows the state to receive money from foreign investors and investments um, in hard currency and pay um, Cubans, um, who remain 80 percent of Cubans, um, work for the state um, to pay Cubans um, in a, another currency, which is um, trades for 25 pesos, more or less, to one U.S. dollar. So Cubans are getting paid about 10 to 30 dollars a month at most. Um, ending the currency system will impoverish Cubans even further because those items and goods sold in the peso, which is what they get paid in, um, will now be sold in dollars. And uh, and so the face of that change will be Diaz-Canel. Um, secondly, since 2011, um, Raul Castro has been announcing the end of the ration. And most Cubans get most of their calories from the rations. They have been getting those rations since 1962. Now it is a, a highly diminished ration. But rice and beans are highly subsidized by the state. And these are basic food items. Cubans have been terrified of this process. Um, again, Diaz-Canel will be a face of that. And meanwhile, Raul is um, effectively, as head of the Army, also CEO of what the Army controls, which is this conglomerate called GESA. Um, it can, it, as part of GESA, um, you have Gaviota, which is the largest tourist operating um, company in Cuba. So these are state companies that work with foreign investors in a neoliberal trade regime um, of assembly plants and free trade zones um, on the island that take advantage of poor, um, um, you know, and very cheap labor. Uh, and they also rake in billions of dollars in tourism. So um, the real economy and the, uh, rather the real power resides in who controls the economy and who controls the military. And that remains Raul Castro. But he will be operating off stage, which is what he right. prefers. And he did that under Fidel, too. He was the enforcer. Um, but he was not the face of, of policy changes. And these things that are going to be very unpopular and will impoverish Cubans um, are going to make Diaz-Canel um, um, uh, I think, extremely unpopular. Um, so I think that this is a strategy that is about um, preserving a Castro legacy um, and um, shifting um, the focus um, from uh, the actual real sources of the policymaking um, and, uh, and shifting blame as a result. So, Richard, do you have any significant level of optimism for the people of Cuba, even in the short term, I mean, obviously, it feels like uh, th that they are going to be dealing with much the same they have dealt with, not only the last 12 years, but the, realistically the last 50 to 60 years. If I could pick up on your previous question about Cubans' optimism yeah. about change as far as uh, to begin my answer, it, as far as the U.S.-Cuba normalization is concerned, I do believe that there were significant levels of optimism about openness with the United States in order to create <clears> – <throat> better bilateral relations between people, between countries, um, and certainly in order to uh, increase the amount of tourism that arrives in Cuba from the United States that then drives so many Cubans' personal economies. However, I would all differentiate this optimism from so sort of a globalization-driven optimism that the Cuba will be less blocked out from the rest of the world, especially um, from the United States, which concretely takes the form of family members and friends and social networks as well, but also as far as travel and economic opportunity, which openness with the United States, especially through tourism, but also through other mechanisms, for example, education or um, you know academic partnerships and things, uh, artistic partnerships, et cetera, could um, possibly spur. Politically speaking, though, my read on um, 
sort of everyday Cuban life is a lack of optimism regarding political change. This is largely a product of political culture that has developed in Cuba over the past 70 years. So to, to, to be hopeful for the future, to have aspirations uh, and excitement for change from the U.S.-Cuba uh, normalization process that began under Obama mm -hmm. um, is very different than having um, optimism about internal political change by Cubans on the island. As far as uh, continued... Uh, 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 or my optimism about the future of U.S.-Cuban relations uh, is concerned. I, it, it, from what I can also understand from the way uh, U.S. policy is articulated uh, towards Cuba by the Trump administration, there are mentions and there are certainly some personnel decisions that would reflect you know, a harder stance. So the discourse is hard, and some of the personnel choices are hard. However, um, the, the rollback of the Obama uh, era uh, normalization policies that began, you know, I think create more confusion than anything else. So in going forward, I think it depends on the articulation of the, the policy by the Trump administration, mm -hmm. by his personnel, and, you know, what that, how that actually takes shape. I do think that the, you know, the question of the U.S. embassy in Havana is quite serious um, as far as blocking further forward movement between the two countries and between, you know, four Cubans living in Cuba who would like to access some aspect of, you know, travel to the United States, tourism to the United States, study in the United States, yeah. and immigration to the United States. Could, can I add something to yeah. this? Um, I think um, what Obama did was highlight that change in Cuba would, uh, that the U.S. wanted to support was the entrepreneurial class that um, has been in existence since 1992. The Cuban state allowed for um, Cubans to self-employ for the first time in the history of the revolution in that year. They took advantage. If more Cubans could take advantage, they would. Um, the Cuban state um, did that because it had to. It couldn't provide full employment. On the other hand, it has consistently since 1992 seen the entrepreneurial sector of the capitalist economy as its primary rival for the tourist dollar, but also um, as a, a competitor for control of public discourse. I mean, certainly with the rise of the Internet and the Cuban state's need to accommodate um, uh, and modernize in some respects, accommodate people's demands to have access. You have um, some openings that have facilitated the entrepreneurial class's expansion. So what has happened recently is that um, when Raul came into power, and he actually became officially president in 2008, um, he had been in power since 2006, but he officially became in 2008, then he carried out a series of purges, political purges, that eliminated the civilians who were rivals to him and who had been loyal to Fidel and who were responsible for the capitalist reforms. And that included the vice president, Carlos Laje, it included the minister of foreign relations, Felipe Perez Roque. Um, he installed in their place or in the place of the vice president, Ramiro Valdez, who is the head of the intelligence services and security forces. Mm -hmm. um, as his vice president, and they doubled down on effectively um, uh, how they could control the entrepreneurial class. So first, 
you know, they allowed it to expand sufficiently to um, increase tourism. The Cuban state has not been able to provide or to build uh, enough um, tourist facilities to to, um, to to meet the demand for of tourists. And so this allowing for bed and breakfast to expand um, in 2012, he allowed for home internet, which allowed those bed and breakfast to then suddenly have access to the world, and, and you even have B, Airbnb being a major space for them to advertise. Yeah. And then recently, of course, in August of this year, when that expansion really showed how much traction entrepreneurs had in the economy, um, Raul um, declared a moratorium on further licensing. He declared it had been an error to expand um, that sector to the degree that it had. And what you have under the Escanel is going to be, as he has in fact stated, virtually simultaneously with Raul's declaration of the uh, moratorium, that he would increasingly police. I mean, Diaz Canel stated um, to the party, and it was leaked to the press, that he would increasingly police the Internet. He would shut down bloggers. He would do whatever it took. In fact, he used the word censorship um, to, to ensure that there would be control of information. But again, this is all about, you know, adapting to the degree that they have to in order to maintain the power structure as it is and impede citizens' ability to become competitors or to occupy um, any kind of a public space that um, we could see as civil society, right? But a public right. uh, control the public discourse um, in 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 a way that would rival or undercut um, um, the the state's ability to 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 do that. Gustavo, it's a monopoly on that. Gustavo, what has been the reaction of the Cuban community in South Florida uh, as as all of this change has taken place? And also, and I know you're you're uh, you stay in touch with how business uh, here in the U.S. has been reacting. Uh, to the potential opening of Cuba over the last couple of years. How has that been viewed? Uh, How have they viewed this uh, in the last uh, several months? So I think that the vast majority of Cuban Americans, um, whether they are for engagement or against engagement, uh, have viewed uh, this, uh, you know, quote-unquote transition with a lot of skepticism uh, for the reasons I think have already been uh, been mentioned. Uh, So there's no great optimism that uh, Miguel Diaz-Canel is going to, uh, you know, be a major reformer uh, that will hearken a new day of liberties, uh, both commercial as well as political, on the island. Um, I think that, uh, you know, clearly the policy is now in the hands of those who have believed for almost 60 years that pursuing a hardline approach towards Cuba to putting economic, diplomatic, strategic pressure on the island will somehow force the government uh, to either give up power or reform their way significantly. And, of course, that hasn't happened. Um, but nonetheless, I think that, um, you know, for whatever reason, uh, those who had been more in the pro-engagement camp have been somewhat more quiet over the last, you know, since, since, certainly since the election of Donald Trump. I should add that, you know, I was very uh, pessimistic when Donald Trump was uh, elected with respect to Cuba policy, but became uh, less pessimistic, if you will, uh, back in June when he announced his policy changes, and especially back in November when the when the regulations were you know, were issued. Because okay. clearly, uh, while the, the rhetoric was very hot and, and talked about rolling back what Obama did, et cetera, in fact, uh, there were there were a few rollbacks, uh, in, in some ways significant, but but about you know 80 90 percent of the regulations remain in place. You may have noticed that except for Last week, when Vice President spoke at the Center of the Americas in, in, in Lima, the administration had been fairly quiet about Cuba, despite the fact that the rhetoric on Venezuela had been turned up. And I think there was a deliberate effort not to put a lot of 
pressure on on the Cubans and decision makers there uh, in connection with um, you know with this uh, selection of, uh, of, of Miguel uh, Diaz Canel. Uh, we'll see what happens now going forward. Now that it's official, now that the world knows who the new leader is, and I'm very curious to see uh, how the Trump administration will will respond in the coming you know hours and days, and as well as how the Cuban government and the U.S. government, in fact, will respond to those responses. R- Richard, what what uh, what do we need to see from the Cuban economy to try and see any kind of build-out. I think if you go back two years when President Obama went there, there was this expectation that you were going to see a lot of businesses come in, you were going to see you know, more open tourism come in. That seemingly you know, has been slowed down significantly. What are the elements that, that we really need to see, whether it be political or economical, to, to start to you know, kind of break the, uh, break the wall that continues to be there between the U.S. and Cuba? One of the main drivers, I think, of concern in many people's lives, beyond just the the very basics of food, is is the the, uh, expansion of the real estate market. And this is very connected to your previous question about Cuban Americans, not just in South Florida, but throughout the United States, and Cubans who are located elsewhere in Spain and in Mexico and other countries um, that have, you know, the, the real estate market in Havana it continues to, insp- to expand, to grow, to receive a significant amount of foreign investment, investment usually through irregular ways, <clears throat> so cash. Um, or, or, or perhaps a transfer, but this is driving um, expansion, <clears throat> and it is of concern because the uncertainty that Lillian mentioned, for example, before around what is going to happen with the unification of the two currencies, if it happens, it's been talked about for years, and yet um, it still has not happened, is of great concern to those who have been able to get capital from various means and then invest in homes in particular, or apartments or rooms in order um, to then service the, the tourist economy. So I think that that is one particular thing to, conti- to keep in mind. The money also is not just uh, of Cubans living abroad um, that are investing through Cuban family members and partners, et cetera, on the island, but also from you know, many countries around the world. So this is driving the yep. expansion, um, the, the, hot, the heat of the uh, real estate market. And the other is I'm not convinced myself as I – see, you know, each time I go back that there is a shrinking of the private business sector as far as, it, as, far as it relates to tourism. You know, some establishments closed, that is, undoubt- that is clear, but then many others open up. So, the, you know, I think that on the ground, what is clear is that there is continued investment but um, into uh, sectors, you know, the service sectors of the economy, namely housing, um, and restaurants, cafes, things like this uh, that are meant to cater to tourism. So I, the, the, that continues, and I think it reflects a certain hopefulness right. um, that a big wave of tourism is about to break again. Hmm. Lillian? Well, yeah. I mean, I would say that, um, first of all, to be specific, real estate sales were legalized in November of 2011. Until that point, it was illegal since 1961 and the adoption of communism for anybody to sell or, or sell or rent property in Cuba. And so this was a, a supposedly a major shift. Now, what it did was allow two things to happen. First, as um, Richard just said, um, exiles who and others, Cubans who live abroad, um, who had been 
sending billion, more than a billion dollars in remittances, and that's a huge part of the Cubans' um, GDP, Cuba's GDP. Even to this day, it's actually more than a billion dollars now. Um, those folks who had family in Cuba began to invest um, and to buy buildings, um, and often as you know, illegally or whatnot, or under the table. And but they did so through their Cuban relatives. Now that has created tremendous resentment in Cuba because most of the exiles and the Cuban Americans abroad are white. Um, black Cubans don't have access to family abroad. In fact, um, if you don't have access to family abroad, you're out of luck. And as Cubans say, you're out of fe. I get that fe. Fe, meaning faith in Spanish, is an acronym and a joke, and it means um, it's supposed to represent fe. Familia en el exterior, family outside of Cuba. So if you don't have family outside of Cuba, you're kind of, you know, you're hosed, right? So you don't get to participate in this. The second thing that the real estate um, uh, law allows um, or enabled was the the, the, the generals who run um, GESA um, and who are the CEOs of all the state corporations that work with foreign investors. They had they needed some place to put their millions. Now we don't know how much money they get paid. Neither do the Cuban people. I mean, none of that is available. It's not a transparent. System. System and there's no accountability financially to the people, and so these folks needed some place to put their money. I think in many respects they were worried about putting in, putting that money in banks abroad, um, lest you know somebody take it away from them at some point. They also didn't want to show what they had, um, and so what they ended up doing was investing generals, right, the officials of the army that are running the corporations. They invested their money in real estate. So you have. Now, private ownership on the part of the generals and and their um, and you know uh, fellow um, officers um, in the military, you have private ownership of a huge part of the economy, and you have them also running the public um, sector of the economy that is again connected to foreign investment and in control of eighty percent of the revenue that um, that generates. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, at all levels, this appears very much like a traditional military dictatorship along the lines of, you know, the kind of dictatorships that ironically the United States used to support in Latin America, you know, and, and the Cuban government used to, to disdain and, and rebuke, right? I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary irony, but it's like the Somosas in Nicaragua in many respects, you know, where the military um, and, the, and the dictatorship over the course of more than, you know, 50 years um, uh, controlled the economy and controlled politics. So I think that there is a lot to be worried about here. And, and with regard to optimism, you know, I would say that um, Cubans realize that every time the United, States a hard, the United States takes a hard line, that that enables the Cuban state to justify its own hard, hardening right. of its policies. Right. Right. And so engagement is the only way um, that Cubans see um, change as, as, as possible in Cuba. Great having you all with us today. Lillian, Richard, Gustavo, as always, great to talk to you. Thank you again for your time today. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.